Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Well, good morning. Uh, We have Emmanuel Gallimidi from Miami, Florida, who is a very prominent plaintiff's attorney, and we are on the Case Closed podcast. So, Emmanuel, our job today is to tell the world what you do and how good you are, and having read your background, uh, you are better than I expected. They're booking really great people for me. So, we're going to get right into it. What has been your highest professional moment in your cases? Sure. Um, I think two, and, and they're not necessarily related to to particular cases. Um, one, I would say, is a referral that I received uh, from a former client. Um, I was a defense lawyer, as you may have seen already, for about 20 years, and I received a referral from a former client on a, uh, on a particular catastrophic injury case. And um, they had any number of options uh, to refer to once I became a plaintiff's lawyer. And the fact that they referred it to me meant a lot. And I would say the second one is a little bit, a little bit different. I had the pleasure of the opportunity of working with some really amazing people um, at my old firm and seeing a, a couple of them become partners at the firm while I was there and kind of ascending and really meeting their, their potential was pretty awesome to see that and to, you know, be a small part of it. And so that, that brought me a lot of, um, a lot of joy. Great. What is the low that you've experienced in your practice? I would say probably, and this is probably being, I was laid off from my first ever job. It was some budget cuts, what have you. And that was, that was pretty disheartening. I was a very young lawyer, probably first, first or second year when it happened. I think it was the second year when it happened. And so that, uh, that was tough. That was tough on the ego and, and, uh, tough financially. So that was, that was difficult. How many cases do you handle today? Approximately. Um, upwards of, uh, typically they, they range between maybe 25 to 40 files, depending on, you know, sometimes they're a little bit lower, but they're a lot more intense. They're a lot more fact intensive and a lot, lot larger cases. So I'll, I won't take on necessarily as many, but yeah, between those two numbers is about right. Do you focus on auto accidents, med mal, product liability? What is your focus? Um, catastrophic injury is typically my focus, whether it's a motor vehicle accident or a product liability case. I've handled, you know, everything kind of up the chain from a small auto accident all the way up to class action defense when I was a defense lawyer. So anything in, in that is, is well within my wheelhouse. Um, how do you get most of your cases? I would say through referrals and through social media. And how many attorneys would you estimate refer to you? Oh, maybe... Half a dozen to a dozen, depends. Okay. What is the biggest case you've had in dollars? I can't really say uh, specific numbers, but I would say in the tens of millions is the the largest case I've handled. And what's uh, the, since you're dealing with catastrophic cases, approximately how many years does it take for resolution in most of your cases? Uh, That all depends. It depends on the response you receive from the carrier, and it depends on the quality of defense attorney that they hire. Oftentimes, you may have a very, very big injury case with clear liability. But if the right lawyer isn't on the other side, uh, and by right lawyer, I don't mean uh, went to the best school or anything, anything like that. 
just more someone who understands uh, how to value cases. If you don't have that person as kind of your first point of entry, and then, you know, whoever the analyst is on the other side for the carrier, if they're not properly trained and they don't, you know, fully grasp the extent of certain cases, then it can take a while. Now, on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum, if you have people who know what they're doing, quite frankly, um, cases can resolve pretty quickly. So uh, of all, let's say you have uh, an average of 40 cases for, for the audience's sake. Uh, how many of those cases end up where you file bad faith paperwork? Oof. Um, that doesn't happen too often. I wouldn't say it happens all, all that often. Most carriers these days are pretty well attuned, I would say, to the perils, especially in Florida, which is um, a hotbed, let's say, of bad faith litigation more than some other states based on how the statute is, is interpreted. So I wouldn't say oh, not, not all too many. And oftentimes because by the time it gets to that point where there may be a valid allegation of bad faith, the right people have gotten involved. And when I say the right people, I mean people kind of further up the food chain at a particular carrier have gotten their hands on it and figured out, wow, we've got a problem here. Uh, and so I'll get you know, a phone call from the right folks and we'll work through it if we can. Are you currently working on any class actions? No. Okay. Is that something that interests you, class action cases? Uh, it is. It's like I've worked on them before, but I don't have any pending right now. Okay. To what do you attribute your success? I would say perseverance. Um, I would say that's the one thing that I would say is, you know, most important for at least for me is just kind of pushing through even when things are difficult or you're, or you don't quite know how to, you know, uh, get one thing resolved or another, you just kind of push through, uh, find the right resources to, to make it happen. What is the best advice you have received and to, from whom did it come? Okay. So I wouldn't say it was, it was definitely advice, but it wasn't given. It was something more than I observed and that I've tried to implement into my practice, most certainly and into my daily life. Um, this was probably, I don't know, 15 years or more ago, I was working on a pretty large construction case. Uh, and for anyone who's watching, who's, who's dealt with construction cases, you know that there's you know, 15, 20 lawyers or more, depending on, on how big the case is. Uh, and I was a younger lawyer who, like a lot of lawyers, um, liked to talk and I always thought I had something really smart to say. Sometimes that was, that was true and oftentimes it wasn't. But in any event, I remember being on all these conference calls and everyone just kind of yapping away and, and me just kind of waiting to get my turn to say something. And there was always a guy, there was one particular lawyer uh, who was lead counsel for one of the bigger defendants. And he really wouldn't say anything. You know, a, a deposition, he'd ask the questions he needed to ask, and that was kind of it. And, you know, in these conference calls, he'd say whatever he needed to say, but you ne he never droned on. And I was like, man, what is this? What's this guy's deal? And anyway, the result ended up really favoring his client. And one thing I kind of picked up was he just, he said what was necessary to say, and that was it. And it taught me the value of just, not saying anything and how that probably gave him, you know, opportunity to kind of think, to observe and without really giving anything away, you know, um, which a lot of lawyers tend to do. I realized as I've tried to incorporate that into my, into my practice and into my daily life. So to answer your question, it wasn't so much advice he gave me, although he probably would have given it to me if he decided well, he to say it, anything. He gave it to you by operation of existence. Right. So by me just kind of watching and realizing he was the one, the one guy who really didn't say much and, was in a position to say a lot if he wanted to, uh, I learned, I'm like, you know, this is a very effective way of practicing and of conducting yourself. So 
Let's incorporate that now. Am I always successful? No. Uh, but I, but bet, I, I bet you t- you tell that to every witness you prep for a deposition to be just like that attorney. It is. And that's, you know, witness prep is its own, its own art and science. But yeah, so that's, I would say, my the biggest piece of advice that I was given in a way that uh, may be a little untraditional. Uh, what do you do? How do you market or get business from social media? That's very interesting because very few attorneys actually do. Sure. Um, I think it's important. Well, I have a YouTube channel uh, that has some videos on it. Um, I've done a little bit of work on Facebook and a little bit on on, um, Instagram. I'm kind of ramping up those efforts, but I've also posted on LinkedIn. I've gotten cases just by posting on LinkedIn. So it's really just trying them all out as best you can and not really worrying about impressions or how many people are seeing it or how many likes, because the reality is, at least in our line of work, we don't have to sell 30,000 t-shirts. You know what I mean? Uh, we just need to get, you know, if you get one or one or two or three cases, whatever it is, you're not investing hardly any money, if at all, on social media, unless you want to kind of pump out advertisements or whatever. So the ROI on it is huge. Some of the biggest cases I've had since I've began my practice have come from social media. So uh, have you ever tried the following? To set up a plan to identify general practitioners that you've never met and take them to lunch, do like the lunch patrol and meet 20 or 30 general practitioners each year and take them to lunch. Have you ever marketed that way? And what do you mean by never met? Just people I, I don't it, know or? Yeah, people you don't know. Have you ever gone out there to try and go to lunch with a whole bunch of different general practitioners you do not know? No, because I, I just the mechanics of it, I'm I'm kind of not sure what you mean. Just if I don't know someone, how would I invite them? You just call them up and say, I'm Emmanuel. I'm the greatest PI attorney ever. And I want to take you to lunch. No, I don't think I've done cold calls like that. I mean, I, I do incorporate the part of, you know, the, taking folks to lunch or breakfast or what have you. I do incorporate those part of my networking. Uh, I do that quite a bit. Uh, I try and have at least one to two breakfast or lunch, what have you, meetings per week if I can. And I just schedule them way in advance. Uh, and so in case folks, you know, can't make it, someone's kid sick, whatever it is, or something comes up with me, I've got folks that are kind of, that I'm waiting to call. So I call them and see if they're available. Um, so I do it that way. Okay. What is our common mistakes you see other attorneys make? Um, and I'm pausing not because I don't see folks do things differently than I would, but I'm just trying to think of what, what the biggest one is. I would say... I would say in our profession is not keeping up with technology because there are so many ways that tech, legal tech specifically, can make life easier for lawyers. When, from everything from uh, networking to uh, client procurement to file management to everything. I mean, if you even if you look at just Chat GPT, um, if you look at that, and that's only about a, I don't know maybe a couple months old, uh, and there's lots of ways that, that lawyers can begin using that if they want to. So I think that that's. I think that's the most common mistake, irrespective of whether it's a first year or someone has been doing it 30 years. I would say that's probably the biggest mistake. So you agree that it's important for the bar to require all of us to have that extra three hours of uh, uh, technology education for our uh, continuing legal education? That's a bit of a leading question. Of course, um, I am a, I'm a defense attorney. Of course, I'm going to lead a plaintiff's <laughs> attorney. So no, I don't know that I, that I need the bar making additional requirements, creating additional requirements. I think that if lawyers want to 
succeed like any other profession, you're going to seek out the means and methods by which to do that. Um, I don't know that I need additional CLE requirements. So without mentioning any defense attorneys, what is the biggest mistake in the dynamics they try and interact with you with? What, how do, does the defense bar upset you by doing X, Y, or Z that inhibits the progress on a case? I would say it's not even so much an interaction with me, um, but I would say not keeping the carrier or if it's a self-insured, what have you, up to date and apprising them of, of any changes in the case, what have you. I, I kind of sound like a supervising defense attorney, which I was for so long. But that's that's really what, what the problem is that I've realized most, of, not most, when a defense lawyer is kind of gumming up the work, so to speak, it's because they're not um, updating the carrier, which doesn't allow the carrier to set their proper reserves. So that when my demand comes in, you know, everyone's kind of running around uh, like a chicken with the head cut off. And it's like, wait a second, you know, my demand's coming in 60 days, 120 days after we started speaking or whatever it is where I sent my, my letter of rep. And now all of a sudden, you're scrambling to get an eval out. And it's like, okay, look, I mean, my demand's going to expire whether your eval went out or not. And now I don't necessarily will know that as a plaintiff's lawyer, I don't have access to someone's calendar, but I can kind of tell having done it for so long, whether they've prepared the carrier and set the expectations for what's to come and or what is here. Um, so I would say that's that's the biggest mm-hmm. obstacle. It's not any, any way of dealing with me. It's more, I know if you're not doing your job and that's what's coming things up. That's what's slowing things down. Okay. So obviously when the defense attorney gums things up, it adversely affects your client. Do you think there's a solution that would allow you to cajole more successfully the defense attorney to properly and uh, keep his client up to date? Sure. I mean, I, I try and be as I try and be as transparent as I can. Now, granted, not all plaintiffs' attorneys practice the same way. Everyone has different strategies, different things that have worked for them in the past. Um, I try and be as transparent as I can with what I think is important for for them, meaning the defense lawyer and the carrier, to value the case. Because there's no sense in me, and this is something that used to tick me off all the time when I was a defense lawyer. There's no sense in me, you know, going to mediation, let's say, and then all of a sudden, the night before doubling my demand or, or finally issuing a demand because now no one's prepared. And what was the point of all that? So there's so, you know, I would just say that uh, being transparent as much as you can, obviously, because we all are tacticians and we all need to, you know, disclose certain things at certain times. But, but for the most part, I would say being transparent because that way, you know, the defense lawyer knows, okay, I've got 500,000 in meds or I've got, you know, these adverse witnesses and this lawyer already has affidavits. So now, I can, you know, when I'm updating the carrier, I know exactly how bad it is. And when we go to mediation, it's now on the carrier to have the appropriate amount of money. Fantastic. How do you help the next generation of attorneys? Um, I'll use that word again, transparency. Um, I'm, you know, I try and explain first, I guess I try and uh, disc- you know, teach by explaining the mistakes that I've made uh, and saying, look, here's how I botched this. And depending if we're having a conversation with somebody, look, here, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I actually had that situation. I botched it. Here's how. Uh, and here's how I fixed it. So I would say, you know, a lot of times when I was kind of coming up, I, I looked at lawyers that were, you know, even when I was a first year, they were like a 10th year or a 20 year or whatever it was. And I'm like, God, these are like, these people are amazing and they don't screw up and I can't screw up and I better not screw up. And it gave them an air of uh, irrefutability 
And it was just the opposite because everyone is human and everybody screws up and makes mistakes. The question is, how bad is a mistake and how often do you make it? That's really the only distinction. And um, whether you make it early enough in that you can fix it. it. Precisely. And so I think it's it's a matter of saying, look, I've made mistakes. Here's how. And, you know, here's how I fixed it. Here's how I resolved it. Or here's how it took me a while to get it fixed because I didn't address it head on. And then those things become teaching moments for folks, and for, for younger lawyers. And that, look, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, you're going to make mistakes that I would never would have made. And I've made mistakes you'll never make, um, you know, depending on personalities and whatnot. But here's how to resolve them uh, and allow you to sleep at night. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another edition of the Case Closed podcast. If you want a great attorney in Miami, you better hire Emmanuel. If not, I've, you have to deal with me, the former defense <laughs> attorney. Thank you very much I appreciate for your that. time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed Podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 